Well, summer is a lot of things, and one of the things it is, is a season when um, Hollywood often releases their big blockbusters in the summer. And imagine that you're in a theater and the lights go down and the trailer comes for an upcoming movie. And this movie promises to have lots to it. It promises things like this. It promises deception and revenge and jealousy and seduction and, and rape and incest and murder and these, these, all of these things. And then, not only that, it says we're going to take on these themes of betrayal and forgiveness, of destiny and choice, of dreams as portals to the future. And you're looking at that movie and you're going, wow, Game of Thrones is coming to the big screen, right? And this isn't describing Game of Thrones, and I don't think they're doing a movie on this anytime soon, but this movie, if this was a movie, this would not be a fictional screenplay because all of this and more takes place in this account of a true story that we're going to look at starting today, the story of a man named Joseph and his family and, and all of that. So let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, let's uh, open up to Genesis 37. If you don't have a Bible at home, we want to let you know that we'd love to give you one free today. That's what those Bibles there on that table and that table are there for. We'd love for you to take one and, and have it as a, as a gift, uh, gift to you. Now, <laughs> we're going to try to today give an overview here. So you, you might need to flip kind of fast as we give this overview, but, but let's take a look at this. The Bible contains the account of several Josephs. If you're not familiar with the Bible, so when we're talking about Joseph, this Joseph is not the father of Jesus. This is a Joseph that lived about 1,900 years before uh, Jesus uh, stepped onto the planet, about 1,900 years before Jesus was born. And as chapter 37 opens, this Joseph that we're going to be looking at, he's a 17-year-old teenager. Joseph is here. He's a 17-year-old teenager. And see if you can track with all this. He's the 11th son of born into a family in which his father had six sons and a daughter with one of his wives, had two sons with that wife's servant, had two more sons with his favorite wife, and two additional sons with his favorite wife's servants. You got all that? Now, all these people live together as one big unhappy family, and Joseph is the favorite son in this dysfunctional group. And everyone knows that Joseph is the favorite son. Let's take a look here. This is Genesis chapter 37, verse 4. It just spells it out right in the beginning of this account here. When his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So this narrative opens up with this brother who is hated because he's the favorite. And then come the dreams. Then come the dreams. Joseph had two vivid dreams that clearly implied his family would one day bow before him. For this, the scripture says, his brothers hated Joseph all the more. The day came when their hatred found an opportune moment, and in a remote location known as Dothan, the brothers seize Joseph. They talk about killing him, but instead decide to sell him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. And if you just kind of are skimming, you'll see all of these things here in the text. Now, Joseph, as he goes out to re- meet these guys, he's wearing a special robe, a cloak that his father had given him as a gift. 
Now, it's hard for us to interpret exactly what that coat, what cloak was like. It seems to indicate one thing in the Greek Hebrew the trans, of the, this narrative, and the Hebrew seems to indicate another. And in fact, the, the Hebrew uses an expression that's used to identify a garment that is used by the daughter of a king. That's the only other time it shows up in the scriptures is to refer to this garment of a daughter of a king. It was either a multicolored robe or one with long sleeves. We just know that it's a very special robe. Well, after betraying Joseph, the brothers tear up this coat, they soak it with blood, and then they go to his father, Joseph's father, and they said, an animal killed your son. Imagine that as a father. An animal killed your son. Well, meanwhile, Joseph's off in slavery. He's in Egypt. He receives promotion after promotion until he is granted oversight over his master's entire household. Then... He's falsely accused of attempted seduction by his master's wife, who had evidently watched too many episodes of Cougar Town. And if this shoots and ladders of, uh, is, uh, if this were shoots and ladders, the dice had been cast in such a way as to facilitate a big slide all the way down to an Egyptian dungeon. However, am I condensing this enough? However, Joseph eventually gains a reputation for interpreting dreams, and that eventually lifted. Joseph to operational oversight over all of Egypt, which was the most powerful nation in the region. Here are the words. We're now all the way to Genesis 44, verse 23. We are fast forwarding here. 44, 23. These are the words of the Pharaoh of, the most, of Egypt, the most powerful uh, nation in the region. Here we go, 41, no, yeah, 41, 23 says this, no, that's not 41, 23. Anyway, he says this, Pharaoh, somewhere along the line, says this, only in regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Now, Pharaoh's own dreams, which Joseph correctly interpreted, proved to be a warning. These dreams that Pharaoh's having, Joseph correctly interprets them. They're a warning that there are seven years of famine that are coming of apocalyptic proportions. Joseph outlined and then implemented a plan that not only saved Egypt from starvation, but Joseph's hunger relief strategy also proved to be a source of salvation for the entire area, including Joseph's extended family. One day, ten hungry Hebrews appeared before Joseph in Egypt with the hopes of securing enough food to keep their families alive. So there's Joseph's brothers before him. They don't know it's Joseph, and Joseph knows it's them. So he decides to put them to a test. He sets his brothers up in such a way as to give them every opportunity now to betray his brother Benjamin, who is now the father's favorite. So he sets this all up, and he makes it easy for them to now betray their father's new favorite so that they could be set free. Joseph gave his fratricidic brethren an opportunity to once more rid themselves of their father's favorite to sacrifice Benjamin in order to secure their own lives and freedom. All the conditions were present for another betrayal. However, his brothers respond in such a way where, where there's a profound turnaround that you can see in their lives. A brother named Judah, who we're going to spotlight next week, he steps forward and he says to the man that he doesn't know that he knows, he says this, Genesis 44, 33 uh, 34, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, let me see the misery. Don't let me see the misery that would come on my father. 
So Joseph sees this. He sees that his brothers have changed. He's given them every opportunity to once again betray one of their own to save themselves or to gain greater stature in their father's eye. So he sees this, and he bursts into tears. And to the amazement of his brothers, he says, it's me. It's your brother, Joseph. And then he says this, after saying, you know, the one you sold into slavery, he says this, don't be frightened of me, and don't be angry at yourselves. This was the work of God. God had sent me ahead of you to save you, to save all these people. Soon Joseph is reunited with his entire family, including his father, and they live together in peace in Egypt. That is as tight as I could condense that story. There is so much there, isn't there? You could go off on all kinds of different directions. And what we're going to do in the weeks to come, we're going we're gonna to dig into two key themes. Next week, we're going to dig into chapter 39. So if you want to read ahead, I would encourage you to read 38 and 39. If you have kids, don't have them read 38 and 39. In fact, next week is going to be a PG-13 lesson. If you normally don't send your kids out with Kids Church, I'm serious, send them out, all right, next week. All right, well, we're going to dig into, dig into that next, uh, next week. And in two weeks, Nick is going to wrestle with the rich themes of destiny and choice and how they're woven together in this narrative. How is it that God's good and redemptive purposes can be in play in the midst of sinful decisions? How can both of those things coexist? So that's where we're headed next week and the week after. Well, what about this week? As I considered how to best invest our time this morning, I really felt like it would be best for us to back the bus up a little bit, to take enough time to just say, here's an overview of the story, and then to actually teach how, is, how, how do we take a story like this if we're on our own, how do we take a story like this and then try to interpret it well and apply it well? So I feel like that's what we need to do today. Have you heard that uh, old proverb um, that says you can give someone a fish and feed them for a day or you can teach them to fish and feed them for a lifetime? Um, I had someone give me some fishing lessons on Wednesday. I had uh, one of our congregation members, Mark Johnson, invited me over to his place and they, they live on Josephine and he took me out and look what Mark caught. This is on Wednesday. Now it looks smaller than it is. That is a about a 26-inch, we measured it, about 26-inch walleye that he caught. So I wanted to take advice from this man, and he showed me some new lures, he showed me a couple techniques, and I caught my first northern in 20 years. There it is, that was on Wednesday. So, so what we want to do as a church, we're a community church. And I know some of you come here, and you, you've been at seminary educated. You've been studying the Bible for, forever, and I, and I understand that. But we also have people among us who haven't who aren't familiar with how, how do you go into the word and then how do you apply it into your own life. So today is one of these days we want to do a little teaching about how do you do that. So let's, let's start with this question right here, specific to this narrative. How do you read the Joseph narrative without reading into the text? That's what I want to look at today. How do we read this without reading into it? If you're new to the scriptures and you, you don't know how to, to, to take these words and then apply them to our current context, you know, how do you do that? And let's use Joseph as an example of that. Um, when our church, this is important, this is real life stuff. When, when our church uh, was in its infancy, I was making a Staples run, getting some paper, and, I, and the church phone rang, which happens to be my cell phone at the time, right? Church phone rings, I pick it up, and, uh, and this guy says, hey, I heard about your church, and I want to know if you guys are a Bible church. Do you really believe the Bible is God's word? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, well, good, good, because I'm a Bible-believing man. 
And then he went on to say, have you ever studied, have you ever studied what the Bible says about multiple wives? And I said, I have not studied that. No, I have not specifically studied that. And he says, well, good, because I'd like to have a discussion about that and why I have two wives. And uh, I said, okay, let's, let's, have a, let's have that discussion. And, and he, um, over the course of several months, he uh, was very persuasive with a number of us trying to have us understand how the Bible, stories like Joseph, is proof that to have two wives is a good and God-honoring thing. He used the example of, you know, this text. And what he was doing was he was reading into the text rather than reading it and applying what it actually says. He, he, he was using the Bible to support choices that the Bible actually steers us away from. And we can do that on so many levels, something as extreme as that or, or other little areas. Oh, here's three things I can learn about parenting from this story. Well, it's not always that simple. Here's a, here's a great... Um, there's a great book that I recommend in your notes. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. How many of you have read that? It's, part of your, isn't it a, it's a great little book. Great little book. I would highly recommend it. Ex- exceptional little resource. Here's an excerpt from that book speaking about, um, about the Bible. It is a unique, unique work. The Bible, it has been cor- correctly said, is the word of God. It's given in human words in history. It is this dual nature of the Bible that demands us the task of interpretation. Because the Bible is God's word, it has eternal relevance. It speaks to all humankind in every age, in every culture. Because it's God's word, we must listen and obey. But because God chose to speak his word through human words in history, every book of the Bible also has historical particularity. Each document is conditioned by the language and time and culture in which it was originally written. Interpretation of the Bible is demanded by the tension that exists between its eternal relevance and its historical particularity. You know, the the Bible is is an amazing, amazing book, and we need it in this day and age. We need God's wisdom. We, We face... Issues in our culture that, is co- that are as complex as any in history. You know, what would God have us to do regarding the crisis on our southern border? And beyond that, the crises that are facilitating that crisis. It's not simple. What would God have us to do? What would God have us to do regarding the escalating violence in the Middle East? It is not simple. What would God have us to do? What would God have us to do when it comes to response as his people in a nation that, that's expanding its definition of marriage and family? What, what, how, do, how do we respond in a God-honoring way? We have access to the living word of God in the scriptures. Scripture is breathed out by God. It is essential for teaching and reproof and correction, for training in righteousness. The word of God is living. It's active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It's able to equip us for every good work. So we have access to this wisdom and this guidance. How do we then take this and avoid the trap of either misinterpreting or misapplying what it says? Well, let me give you some thoughts on that. Here, here are some quick, quick thoughts. The first is this. Get the right tools. Get the right tools. You know, have them. And, and one of the things that's a basic tool is a, is a translation that you can read, um, one that's, that's written in a way that you can understand, that's accurate but written in a way that you can understand. Um, one that you might want to consider is the Living Bible translation. It's uh, re- very, very readable. 
Um, it isn't as much word-for-word, thought-for-thought, but it, but it does a good job of capturing the essence of what it says. So that might be a thought. Another tool I want to encourage you strongly to get, um, and I encourage you to get at least two, are study Bibles. Here's why I think they're an important tool. You see this stack here? In the stack, these are what are called commentaries. What they do is they try to say, here is as best we can understand with all of our scholarship and all of our best thinking, here's what we think the Bible is saying in those passages. So here's one example of just New Testament, just one set of commentaries. There's also tools like this, background commentaries, which really focus in on the historical context. Um, I've got an atlas here of Bible lands. Here's the maps. Here's what it looked like. Here's the geography. Here's, here's, here's all that type of thing. I've got a book of timelines. Here's where all this fits in Bible history and up and against world history. I've got a dictionary of the Bible, a dictionary that, that says, okay, this word that you're coming across, what does that mean? Okay, how many Josephs were there and, and who were the different Josephs and those types of things. And then I have what's called a concordance and that can help you find every word you're looking for in the Bible. If you want to know where it says love, here's every place it says love. What a study Bible does is it takes all this and, and, and tries to put it here as best it can. Now, the stuff beyond God's word, that's all human scholarship, human interpretation. That's why I recommend having at least two. And you'd be well served if you get an NIV study Bible, an ESV study Bible, and a readable translation. That'll give you three translations and two different perspectives on it. So I would encourage you to consider getting those resources. And here's a third thing that that I believe is an essential tool, and that's helpful friends. That's helpful friends. It's people that can come alongside you and, and help provide additional perspective. Because we can all think we've got it figured out, but to have others who can speak into that as well. We'll do the best we can as a group of friends on Sunday mornings to dig into the Bible. We'll do our best to, to teach every year on biblical thinking. We'll take a, a theological topic, like what does the Bible say about end times or heaven and hell or angels and demons or sin and redemption or spiritual gifts or the sacraments. We'll do the best we can each year to take on at least one of those and to say here's... Here's what the Bible says about this thing. We'll also do our best each year to teach on biblical practices like Bible reading, praying, fasting, giving, learning how to discern God's voice. Every year we'll try to take on at least one of those and say here's what the scriptures say about that. Every year we'll try to devote at least now, this, from this time forward, at least two series each year to do what we're going to do with this series and that is just take the scriptures instead of a topic and say let's dig into them. What do they say? And we'll try to do at least one Old Testament passage or book and at least one New Testament passage or book. We'll also try to have at least a couple teaching series every year where we start with a topic and then we give biblical perspective on something like evolution or the problem of evil or relationships. So what we'll try to do as a group is we'll try to cover each of those things each year. But what I want to encourage you to do is is not just to have that be enough because that's one way. Find people who you can have two-way conversations with a small group or a team what's that for instance something that meets right after this service called replay how many of you been a part of replay before or currently there you go and what they'll do is they'll act they'll come they'll take this message that was a nice softball thing see if i can hit it um then they'll they'll come they'll they'll talk and and you can discuss this now ask questions give insight and all those types of things very good all right so those are some tools now let's talk about the second part. If you, if you want to do a good interpretation, if you want to do a good application, then you also have to apply the correct contextual rules. This one's a little trickier, and this is why a, a, a resource like a study Bible could be so helpful, because the Bible isn't, 
like a lot of the books that we'll read. It's a collection of documents, ancient documents from different authors, different time periods. And these documents aren't the same type of literature. Contained in the Bible, you've got songs and stories. You have letters and poems. You've got prophecy and apocalyptic literature. The Joseph account is a specific type of literature known as narrative, historical narrative. It's, it's kind of like historical storytelling, only it's more than that. So you, you identify the, what type of genre you're looking at. So it's narrative. Now, moving on to number two, in a narrative, if you want to interpret Joseph correctly, the behavior you read, it might be prescriptive or descriptive. It might be prescriptive in that you should follow that example. It also might be descriptive in this is just what happened. It may not be the type of behavior you want to imitate at all. Should we imitate everything that we see the characters in the Bible do? No, 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 no. What about the good characters? Should we do everything Noah did? No. He got drunk, passed out naked in a tent. No, don't follow that. You know, everything Moses did, Abraham did, or even Joseph did? No. Don't imitate everything that you see. Just because someone in the Bible does something in a narrative, that doesn't mean we should follow their example. Here's another great quote from that book I recommended earlier, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It says this, Narratives, they're precious to us because they so vividly demonstrate God's involvement in the world. They illustrate his principles and calling. Narratives record what happened, not necessarily what should have happened or what ought to happen every time. Which then brings us to our next point, number three, as we're applying these contextual rules. Here's something to remember. Narratives often illustrate what is taught explicitly elsewhere. Meaning, you might have an example through someone's life in a narrative, and then in the Bible, there'll be a specific teaching, sometimes even within the narrative itself, where the narrator, or in another letter, it'll say, do this, don't do this. So we have to bring those together. And we're going to do that next week when we contrast Judah and Joseph in Genesis 38, Genesis 39. You'll, you'll see this in play then. All right, so that's next week. Number four, here's another thing to remember. If you want to, uh, to apply the right contextual rules to a narrative, pay special attention to what the narrator does and doesn't reveal. Narratives have a narrator, right? Narratives have a narrator. And the best narrators, what they're going to do, they're not going to tell you everything they know. What they're trying to do is to draw you into this story and have you learn the lessons yourself. There will be times where they spell it out, but often what they'll do is they'll, 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 uh, they'll utilize the storytelling to help drive this lesson home. So in a narrative, pay attention to what the narrator narrator includes. Pay attention to what the narrator excludes. Pay special attention to what the narrator repeats. Pay special attention to what the narrator repeats. Pay special attention to what the narrator repeats, even if it isn't just sequentially, but throughout the story. Here's an example of that in the Joseph narrative. This is from 39. Take a look at this. This is all in there. The Lord was with Joseph, and then in the next verse, his master saw that the Lord was with him. This is when Joseph was sold into slavery. He's in this household, and he's making his way up, right? And things look like they're going well. And then in the end of the chapter, things look like they're not going well because now he's been falsely accused. He's thrown into this dungeon, and it says, but the Lord was with Joseph. 
And the keeper of the prison knew the Lord was with him. The narrator's doing this on purpose. The narrator is, is trying to clue us in that when things appeared to be going well for Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. When things didn't appear to be going well for Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. Repetition is a clue that what you're reading is important. And you have to be really attentive because sometimes repetition comes through the narrator. Sometimes it comes through the actual characters in the story. So look for that. Look for repetition. And in this case, what is repeated is of vital importance. Let's fast forward here all the way to the end of the narrative, to actually to the end of Genesis in chapter 50. These are the words now of Joseph as the narrative is coming to an end. Joseph says, You intended to harm me to his brothers. God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In apparent good times and even in apparent bad times, God was at work in Joseph's life. Did God cause the things that caused Joseph pain? Did God course correct everyone's mistakes and and create a new plan B? The narrator may not answer those questions that we have. What we should be attentive to is what does the narrator actually say? What does the narrator actually reveal? Try not to read too much into things. Look for what the narrator says. And in this case, the narrator, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying in no uncertain terms, God was with Joseph. And that brings us to number five. Individual biblical narratives are part of the big narrative. We we can't lose that. We can't just take these narratives in isolation and then pick and choose little things out of them. How do they fit into the big story? The big story of the Bible the story of what God has done and what he's, what he's accomplishing and what our eternal destiny will be, that big story. The narratives in the Bible aren't just history. They are highlighted aspects of his story, of God's story. There's at least two levels in biblical narratives. There's the story itself, like the story of Joseph, and then there's the big story, the meta-narrative where God is the hero. And sometimes the narrator will spell this out for us. Here are some examples from the Joseph narrative. We see that it's, it's God here. God was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Do we have those passages there? Lord was with Joseph. Interpretations of dreams belong to who? God. As Joseph's interpreting these dreams, it's not because he's some powerful person. It's God doing this. Joseph says, God sent me ahead of you to save your lives. Joseph says, God intended all this for good. The individual biblical narratives are part of a much bigger story, and it's the most important story of all. It is a story of God's salvation, of God saving his people, of God calling people back to himself. God saved Joseph from his brothers and from prison. God also saved Joseph from himself. If we had an extra week in this series, it would be interesting to dig into that. God saved Joseph from himself. Look at him. Look at his trajectory early on. He was a blossoming narcissist, right? And where does that take you? You follow that trajectory. God saved him from himself. And not only that, God also used Joseph to save Joseph's family, to save thousands of others from starvation. So you've got this story of God's salvation in and through Joseph. But that's just one part of this bigger story of God saving humankind. And we see that there. God's salvation doesn't end in the Joseph narrative. Like so many Old Testament narratives, 
the Joseph narrative foreshadowed a much greater salvation that was to come. These are the recorded words now of Jesus of Nazareth. As recorded in John chapter 5, 39 through 40, Jesus said the scriptures bear witness to who? Jesus said that the scriptures bear witness about me. And the parallels are are astounding. Centuries after Jacob sent Joseph on a mission, the Son of God left his father's dwelling place to seek and save the lost, to destroy the devil's work. Jesus of Nazareth was rejected by his own. He too was sold for silver coins. Lies were told about Jesus. Jesus was betrayed. He was bound. He was sentenced to death. And like Joseph, Jesus understood God was at work through all of this. In the recorded words of Jesus, we have Jesus turning to this man, Pilate, who has the power, supposedly, to sentence him to death. He looks and he says, you would have no power if it were not given to you from above. So Jesus understood he was part of something bigger. God used Joseph to save a particular people at a particular moment in time from a temporary form of suffering. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it has the power to save everyone, not just in this life, but in the age to come. Let's blow out this passage just a little bit more, John 5, 39 through 40. Jesus says, the scriptures bear witness about me, and then he gives us his invitation. He says, come to me. You may have life. The Joseph narrative is filled with examples of God at work. And as you're going to see over the course of this series, God can take the darkest that humanity has to offer and God can bring good from it. God is capable of that. Not just capable, he's doing it all the time. He won't let our worst things that ever happen to us be wasted. That's who God is. And there's this invitation from God this morning, instead of going your own way, instead of taking your cues from this world, will you consciously seek to know and do the will of God? I I wish I could articulate this well. I tried to put these into words. I sat at my computer and I'm looking at the screen. Okay, so it's 8.30, I better go. You know, I, I thought, let me see if I can get this out. You can go through life And you can make all kinds of mistakes. All kinds of mistakes. You can commit atrocities. And you know what? God is big enough to take even your evil intentions and bring good out of it. God is capable of that. And even if you're not trying to do it, if you're just trying to go through life and you're just ignoring what God says and you're just, your life's a train wreck, God will bring great things out of that. He can. But rather than contributing to more brokenness in our world rather than contributing to people looking at your life and saying, see, you say you're a Christian, but look at you. Rather than contributing to that, why not consciously come to Jesus and say, God, you also work through those who consciously do your will. Is this making any sense? You you can have a choice. You can go through and have God bring good out of your mess, or you can consciously go to him and say, God, I'm here to serve you. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say everything I have is yours. And you can consciously receive the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. You can be about his reconciliation, not as him doing it in spite of you, but as you doing it in partnership with him, with Christ working through you, with people looking at your life and going, 
obviously there's something going on because this is beyond you. And you're able to say, yeah. Do you see that choice, that contrast? God can. He's big enough to work through either, and he does. Praise be to God. If you're able to look with, with his eyes at the end of your life, you're going to see your life was not wasted. Even those horrific things that happened to you were not wasted. But how much better to be able to fully embrace the life he invites us into. So as we enter into the series that explores all these things, let's commit ourselves to that end, would you? Let's stand, please, and let's pray. Oh, Lord, um, I, I pray that your words come through because I don't know how to express these truths that are so great and so wonderful. And even to express that invitation. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bless us with those insights. The things that I was trying really hard to say, we pray that your spirit would speak now to human hearts and minds. Perhaps so that, you know, that you get the glory instead of um, me being able to take any credit whatsoever. Lord, we do pray that you'll help us to, to align our lives with your good and, and perfect purposes, not by default, but by conscious pursuit. Help us, Father, to know your will. Help us to have minds that are in tune with your mind of Christ and, and help us to have hearts that, that break for the things that break yours and that are passionate about the things that matter so that the world can look and they can see that light and they can praise our Father who's in heaven. So, Lord, would you bring us to that place more and more and more. And Lord, we pray for this, this series coming up. It's a short one, but God, we, we know you can speak through it. So as we dig in to these texts, Father, we pray that you are going to meet us in them and you're going to help our lives to be better aligned with your plans and purposes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.